Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, dearly beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. A warm thanks to Brady and Diana for blessing us in worship, preparing our hearts for the apex of Christian worship that is the preached Word of God. The crews were hard at work this week at the church installing brand new audio-visual equipment. That was exciting. Technology can be a blessing. It allows us to reach corners of the world we could not have gone to before in such speed. It allows the preached Word to not only go forth in greater clarity for us today, but technology preserves it for us and for future generations as well. And because of our investment in proclaiming and preserving the preached Word, the reach of Harrison Hills is quintuple the amount of people we fellowship with each Sunday. Glory to God. And that is exciting. We are going to hear stories when we graduate to glory of impacts that we never knew about. The faithfulness of HHBC in prayer each Wednesday night, the giving of time and treasure reverberates in eternity. Be encouraged in that. As the Lord grows our impact and our influence, both in our community and abroad, but most importantly, in our own hearts and in our own homes as the work of the Word takes hold. For we do not preach ourselves, Paul told the church at Corinth, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The Word is given to us that we might see and see with clarity, Psalm 119, as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, bringing with it rebuke and restoration, comfort and conviction, joy in our justification, spiritual sight in our sanctification, and a great hope in our future glorification. So let the Word of Christ, dearly beloved, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we are thankful this morning. Just think of all that needed to transpire and to be provided to each one of us to allow us to be right here. A thousand things we take for granted, each that could have hindered us, and yet here we are gathered under the inspired and the inerrant and the all-sufficient Word. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning we embark on part two. Part two of a very complex, of a difficult scene in Scripture. But one that is rich in application and theology. And as we will see, one that will leave us loving our Savior more when we're done than when we began. Last week we launched part one titled, Faith of a Father. And it began with Jesus, Peter, James, and John descending back down Mount Hermon from the Transfiguration, only to come upon a large crowd and the nine disciples that they had left behind engaged in a verbal judo match with the scribes. This was a scene of verbal harassment from the scribes. It was jeering, even mockery, as the disciples had been unable to cast a demon out of this boy brought to them by a desperate father. These scribes were smearing them, rubbing their noses in their failure to cast out this demon. 
While this scene is going on between the scribes and the disciples, they're so engrossed in the verbal altercation that nobody notices Jesus come on the scene with Peter, James, and John. Asking the disciples and no doubt attacking the divinity and the claims of Jesus as they always did, there he is in their midst. And we know this from our text, speaking of the amazement and the bewilderment of the crowd, that they were shocked as they ran and greeted him. While the disciples are getting their shirts handed to them by the scribes, like a teacher on the playground, Jesus shows up and he confronts the bullies. And he asks them what they're arguing about. By digging into the scene last week, we're able to glean the incredible awkwardness and even the embarrassment of this interaction. Not only were the scribes speaking ill about someone who was right behind them, but the disciples are wallowing in this pool of failure as well. Both parties to this argument, to this bullying scene, have nothing to say when Jesus confronts them. The only one to speak up, indeed to yell out, was the father of the demon-possessed boy, verse 17. The father tells Jesus, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. One rendering said they did not have the strength. We did a fairly deep dive last week into why the disciples could not cast this demon out. If we look back to Mark 6, we saw very clearly that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits and that they were in fact casting many demons out. But at this moment, with the master gone, with a chance to flex their ministry muscles, they approached this act of exorcism completely uncovered. What do we mean by that? What did the disciples not do? Well, we took a sneak peek at the very la- last week at the very end of our story. Verse 29, Jesus said, And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. By telling them that this kind only comes out by prayer, what is he telling the disciples that they did not do? Pray. You've had this previous success, and you're a victim of that success. I know, I've done this a hundred times before. I know what to do. I've got this. Turns out, no, they don't got this. So yes, the surface problem, the presenting problem, as it were, was that the disciples did not pray. They approached the task in their own strength, and their own steam. That's the presenting problem. But as we always ask from this pulpit, what was the heart of the problem? No need to guess. Jesus tells us in the first words out of his mouth as he issues a stinging rebuke to his disciples in verse 19. What does he say? Oh, unbelieving generation. The sinful action was a failure to pray. The heart sin that was driving the lack of prayer was unbelief. When we do not pray, when we charge at life as a lone ranger, we are acting in unbelief. We're telling the Lord that what you say about your power is wrong and what I say about my power is right. I don't believe what you have spoken. We're going to see an incredible intersection of that in our text today. By way of reminder, this narrative can be found also in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9. So we see this in all three of the synoptic Gospels, which is 
ever so helpful to us. It gives us beautiful angles to the scene. Now, of course, we focus on Mark's telling, right? Because we, we don't want to pull away from what Mark thought was the most important to record, but it's so wonderful to have these different perspectives. It gives, helps us get to the intent and to the meaning of the text. And indeed, as we looked at the approach of this father to Jesus, we're given insight into this father that shows himself throwing himself at Jesus' feet. Coming in an absolute spirit of humility, in a posture of worship, and with an intensity of desperation, we begin seeing the ingredients of faith. Of faith. We know that this was his only son, a boy that had been tormented since childhood. And in great violence, in unpredictable violence, this demon would slam this boy to the ground. Foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, becoming rigid. Scripture records that this boy was both deaf and mute. And it would often throw him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Short of the demoniac of the gathering, there is no more horrific example of demonic possession in Scripture. What a terrible existence. Let us consider for a moment what everyday life looked like for this family. Socially, what did it look like? It looked like complete ostracization. Your son suffers from this. What's the question on everyone's mind? Who sinned, right? In ancient Israel, they believed any sickness or any demonic possession meant someone was in sin. It's a punishment from God. You were under a curse. Often you wouldn't even be allowed in the synagogue. Unclean, ritually, ceremonially. And you'll recall even the disciples asking this very question in the Gospel of John. Remember the man that was born blind? First question out of the disciples' mouth. Who sinned? Him or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus corrects their theology. No one sinned. This was done that the works of God might be displayed in him. Socially and culturally, it was a bleak existence for this family. No one sent Jimmy and Susie over to play at a home with the demon-possessed boy. Speaking of the possession itself, we know from verse 18 last week that this violent gripping was completely unpredictable. If there was a table around the house when the demon chose to strike, this boy's head could just be cracked on the way down. You can't bring him near water, the demon will try and drown him. You can't bring him near fire, which we cook on, the demon will try and throw him into it. This is a life of torment for a parent just imagine. How much does it hurt? How, how, how much is the hurt amplified when you witness hurt in a child? And worse yet, in your own child. That's torment. And it was not only the boy who lived an excruciating life. It was the father as well. And you have to assume the mother And yet we are going to see the blessing in this desperation. It has driven this father to the feet of his Savior. This was a father with faith. Not perfect faith. Not perfect in understanding. But he knew who Jesus was. And he comes to Jesus in humility and in worship and in desperation. And I do love this father in our scene. As I've studied him more and and this scene more, there are layers upon layers. But one aspect I love that's so easy to miss is that this father did not judge Jesus by the weakness 
and the failure of his followers. He didn't reject Jesus because the disciples were ineffective and weak. If you've rejected the faith or been tainted in your walk because of those who have named the name of Christ not representing Christ, I know how hard that can be, but you're looking at the wrong person. Take a page from this father. His eyes were fixed on Jesus, not the failure of the disciples. In a very real sense, this father who sat there, ravaged along with his son, was in a very enviable position. All of this had driven him to Christ. Would we trade a life of comfort and ease where, the, where we slip quietly into the yawning jaws of hell to a distress or a pain that drove you to the lover of your soul? Give us eternal lenses, Lord. Help us to see with your priorities and with your love for us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That is becoming the heart of this Father. He does have faith. He is humble. He is worshipful. But He is shattered. We will see Him in our text today cry out from the belly of His soul as a broken man, but with a green shoot of faith springing forth. We're going to see the compassion and the power of Jesus that we might love Him more. That's why we're here. So with that introduction and review, let's look at our text this morning. Mark 9, 20-24. Mark 9, 20-24. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long... Has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and was saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that You have preserved this scene for us. That You have preserved this deep text that we might swim in the depths of it. That You have given us examples to go before us to know how we should live. Heavenly Father, I do not know the needs of every person sitting in these chairs today. But Holy Spirit, You do. And we ask that you would wield this word and the arrow would find its mark. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, I love a good opening analogy as much as the next person. You know I do. But we have such thick veins of theological gold to mine from the mountain this morning. With so much to see, we're just going to dive right in. So I hope that you're ready. So let's begin with our first verse. Verse 20. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. Pause there for a moment. Well, this is done in response to Jesus' command back in verse 19, to bring the boy to me. Well, this sounds like common sense. Jesus asked that he be brought, so they brought him. 
there's two things we should see. One is the obedience of that crowd to do it. That tells us that this crowd had some knowledge of what Jesus could do and how they previously ran to and they greeted Jesus. That tells us that as well. And secondly, it shows us that the boy was not with the father when he ran and fell at Jesus' feet. That's worthy of quick mention because it helps us to visualize the scene. So back to our text. And they brought the boy to him when he saw him. Again, pause and exercise care. Who is seeing whom here? If we gloss over it, we might think that we're talking about the boy seeing Jesus. But the he here is the demon. It's the demon that saw Jesus. And indeed, we're about to see one final hurrah for this fallen angel. Immediately, the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Well, I was, I was chewing over this verse. It, it harkened forward to Revelation 12.12. 12. While talking about Satan, it captures the spirit of what we're seeing take place. John the Revelator writes, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. This demon knows his time is up. His nemesis stands before him, Jesus Christ, and he is undefeated. And we know how violent the attacks were before unpredictably slamming this boy to the ground. Now imagine the final effort to kill the host once and for all. The spirit knew him, threw him into a convulsion. They threw him into a convulsion. Our English fails to capture the violence of this. The specific word used for convulsion is only used in one story in all of Scripture, and that's right here. It's awful. No attack recorded in Scripture rises to the level of this word. It, is, it means to rip or to lacerate altogether. It, mean, it means to convey that the demon is trying to tear the boy apart, to rip him limb from limb. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. All of this is in the imperfect tense. That means it's continual. It wasn't a flip-flop on the ground. It's pure chaos as this demon makes one final attempt. Saints, I want us to catch something here. Right now, the demon has seen Jesus. It's making a final attempt at taking the boy's life. But we must see the planning and the sovereignty of God in this scene. While this is a spectacular display, it's a theatrical display, a final push. We know from the telling of the, our synoptic Gospels that the demon has been trying to kill this boy from the beginning. Fire, water, you name it. But he could not do it. Don't miss that. The influence of the demonic, the possession of the demonic, takes the lives of millions through the heartbreaking tragedy of suicide, drug use, Lifestyles that destroy a person. Demonic influence is instrumental in millions of deaths. This demon could not kill this boy. 
He hasn't been playing footsie with this boy from childhood. The forces of hell wanted him dead. Yet this was allowed that the works and the glory of God might be revealed at the proper time. All the pain, all the suffering, all the nights the father must have wondered why. There is a plan. The deliverance of this boy was always the plan. Thus the demon could not kill this boy. Try as he may, even right now with a final thrust, nothing doing, nothing doing. Jesus Christ is in control. That's what it means to be God. From the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, he's in control of it all. Back to our text. I promised at the beginning of our series that you would love your Savior more by the time we were finished. And here we come upon an exchange in verse 21 that is so beautiful and yet so easily missed. Look at this, verse 21. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. What gives here? Did Jesus not know how long this has been happening to him? We just said that it had been decreed from the foundation of the world. So what's with the question? Saints, it is our drive as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark to not only be shown what Jesus has done, but to be shown who He is. Because ultimately, that is what we are putting our faith in. Our faith is not put into an act or in a miracle. As wonderful as those things are, they are there to point to a person, to accentuate and to demonstrate who He is. Yes, we want to know what Jesus has done, but only that we might know who He is. And here is the question to the Father. We get to look at who Jesus is. Jesus knows everything about this man and his boy. They were created by him and through him and for him. He knows every hair on their head. He knows them better than they know themselves. But Jesus is a deeply compassionate person. He asked the Father how long this has been going on. Why? Because he desires to bear the Father's burden with him. Tell me the burden of your heart. Tell me your story. He desires to come alongside Him in comfort. We have a Savior who is sympathetic to the plight and to the pain of His people. What a juxtaposition from the stinging rebuke just a few verses later. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? To this tender compassion, behold the lion and the lamb. Oh, to love our Savior more. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn and we weep with those who mourn and weep. We empathize. We sympathize. As Christians, we enter into another's pain and we walk with them. That is exactly what Jesus is doing here for this man. When Jesus asks a question in Scripture, it's not for His benefit. He knows everything. It is for the benefit of the one answering or for those that are listening. How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. We've always lived under this condition. There was probably rarely a time they can remember when they did not live like this. 
living every day waiting for a demonic force to kill your child, if even by blunt force trauma, ripping him apart. Separated from society, viewed as cursed or in sin because of your child's condition. No parents. Families disowned you, so they're not guilty by association. This was their life. And if we do not understand this, we will not understand the desperation that the father comes with. A broken man, but with a green shoot of faith pushing through. Jesus' desire for this man to share his pain with him opens this man up. And it brings the details of his pain flooding out of this father. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Continuing in our text, verse 22. Verse 22. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. They lived a life of complete paralysis. Anything resembling a normal life was not possible. And here the Father makes a revealing statement. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This tells us a great deal about this man. But if you can do anything, does this man have a perfect faith? No. Better yet, does he understand the character and the nature of the one to whom he is speaking? He knows what Jesus has done. His reputation is everywhere. There is not a question that Jesus has the capacity, the capability to help him. He knows what Jesus has done, but he does not yet know who he is. He doesn't know the heart of the Savior standing in front of him. No professing Christian would say they doubt that Jesus is powerful enough to accomplish what He wills for us. But we secretly doubt His goodness or His love or His desire to do it. We know He's powerful enough to do it, but we don't think He will. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This man has a struggling, budding faith that knows Jesus can do it, but doubts if he will. And yet the compassion that Jesus exhibits is showing this man, is moving this man's faith out of head knowledge into heart intimacy. And we do not exercise faith, as we said, toward an act or a miracle. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. Who He is, that is who we love. We do not serve and worship and have faith in the gift. We serve the gift giver. The man is being moved in his faith. He is having the knowledge of who Jesus is being added to the knowledge of what Jesus can do. Watch watch Jesus' response here. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can. Pause there. Why so many translations put a question mark here, I'm not sure. Because it's not a question at all. Jesus is making much more of an exclamation. One translation renders it, What do you mean, if I can? You know that I can. Now do you believe that I will? You know my ability. Now come know my character. The next words out of Jesus' mouth are a sermon unto itself. We'll jump in if we dare. 
I'll try and keep it brief. All, <laughs> all things are possible to him who believes. There is a bridge between the frail inability of man and the all-sufficient supply of God. That is the bridge of faith. Now we need to pause on this statement of Jesus for a moment. This is a favorite verse for false teachers, for prosperity pimps, for word faith charlatans, for name it and claim it. All things are possible to him who believes. What does that mean? Does that mean a Ferrari is possible for you if you really believe it? If you have enough faith, you can get it. If you can believe it, you can achieve it. Not only is that nonsensical garbage, but it is deadly for a soul. This is, a, this is one of those sayings that is plucked out of context and without critical thinking has shipwrecked the faith of many. This is truly a message unto itself. and We have limited time, but very quickly, let's look at this. All things are possible to him who believes. Well, the first question we must answer is to him who believes. Well, believes what? Believes what? We cannot divorce this statement from this context or it really makes no sense. To him who believes what exactly? This must be answered because it is not the intensity or the sincerity of a belief that determines its truth. It is the object of that belief and that faith that determines its truth. So we need our context. What is the object of our belief and our faith here in this verse? It is Christ. It is the person of Christ. Look unto me. Have faith in me. Believe in me. How about the first part? All things are possible. What's the context here? We have a broken man. We have a broken man with an impossible situation. A problem beyond human ability. A situation that without God is hopeless. So what is this verse saying? If you will place your faith in me to act on your behalf, I can and will perform in accordance with my will because of who I am. All things are possible. I can make the deaf hear, the blind see, the demons tremble and flee. And most of all, I can take a rebellious man who's dead in his sins and I can make him live. Tell, him, tell me what I can't do. I take hearts of stone and I give hearts of flesh. Tell me what I can't do. All things are possible. The problem is not divine unwillingness or divine inability, but human unbelief. And this realization comes slamming into this father. And he cries out with one of the most guttural, deep cries of the heart in all of Scripture. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Behold the true battle, saints. This father was able to merely talk about his son and all the horrificness that went with that. But when it came to faith, he had to cry out. He had to cry out. Why? Because true faith is constantly aware of how inadequate it is. I've got to say that again. True faith is constantly aware of how inadequate it is. This man has now seen who Jesus is as he is being made into a new creation right here. But what happens when we get a glimpse of the light? What happens when someone throws open the drapes and the sunlight comes pouring into the room? All you can see is the dust 
and the dirt everywhere. Everywhere. And as the light gets brighter, it only accentuates the stains. The more you grow in the Lord, the more sin looks exceedingly sinful. We do not become less aware of our sin after walking with the Lord for 50 years. We become more aware of our sin. Charles Spurgeon famously said, The holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness that remains. This is exactly what has happened here with this guttural, desperate cry for faith. I knew Jesus. I knew what He can do. I even had the budding shoots of faith springing up in my heart. But now I have seen Him. Now I have spoken with Him. Now I have seen His compassion and His mercy. I have seen who He is. And in the radical realization of that, as the very Son of God speaks to me and asks me about my Son, my heart is wrecked within me. And I see the inadequacy of my faith. And I acknowledge my inadequacy. And I acknowledge my insufficiency. And I throw myself on the only one that can save me. What a turn of events to discover that the actual battleground was not with a demon. And as we would all have thought, and as this man would have thought as he came to Jesus, the battleground was going to be the Father's faith. He had knowledge. That's what brought him to Jesus today. But the work was not yet done in this man's heart. The great Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, quote, Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. This father cannot be left in the state that he came with a knowledge of who Jesus is, even calling him curios, Lord, Master, Teacher, throwing himself at Jesus' feet. Beware. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many magnificent things in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. The faith of this father must be brought over the Rubicon. It must be brought over. It was only after he saw the heart of his Savior that the light flooded his soul. But oh, that light shining on my faith shows it to be weak and frail. And I do believe. Please, Lord, help my unbelief. When we are confronted with the glory and the perfection the love and the compassion, the heart of the risen Savior, we are changed. But now that we are changed, we look at the arsenal that we're called to fight the fight of faith with, and we cringe. Oh, little worm that I am. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Understand, beloved, all peoples will see this glory. And for the believer... It causes us to cry out in inadequacy and to run to the gift giver for the weapons of our warfare. For the unbeliever, they have no such inclination when they are confronted with this glory. Revelation tells us that they will hide in caves. They, they will call to the surrounding mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? We will all see His glory. Those to whom He has granted repentance fall at Jesus' feet as His Father is doing. 
They will cry out with the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I believe. Help my unbelief. I see it now, and I feel ill-equipped for the task. What a beautiful place to be. Beautiful. One of the most brilliant theologians of all time, John Owen, a man who lost 10 of his 11 children, well acquainted with feeling powerless in his life, like this father felt today, was later able to say with conviction that we have no power from God unless we live in the persuasion that we have none of our own. We have none of our own. That is the place of blessing and of faith. That is the place this father has just stepped into, and it is a most beautiful place that you and I must step into. I believe. Help my unbelief. But let us understand this, beloved. And let this be of great encouragement to us. On this side of eternity, belief is always going to be mixed with unbelief. Even if it's a tiny grain of sand in the cogs of the clock, always. And it's one of the hardest parts of being a believer. That everything we do is going to be tainted. There will always be a fly in the ointment. No action, no motive will ever be completely pure. And that frustrates the believer. That vexes the believer as they examine their own hearts as we're called to do. Every follower of Christ who's been regenerated by the Spirit knows exactly what we're speaking of right now. Something that is imperfect cannot commit perfection. Unless, of course, it's Tina or Diana's dessert. That is perfection. But what do we do with that, dear saints? What do we do with that continual realization that our belief is mixed with unbelief? That it's all tainted to some measure or some degree on this side of eternity. The response? To make you long for heaven. To look forward to it. To make this world grow strangely dim. To not love the world, nor the things in the world. Grab hold of this, saints. This longing for eternity is meant to capture our life and our thoughts at every turn. And God gives us reminders every day. When you hit your finger with a hammer, that pain reminds you that you're on this side of eternity. Don't curse the air. Let your praise be drawn to heaven. You just received a tangible reminder of sin and the fall and your salvation. Glory to God. Stay away from hammers. When your body begins to break down, a creaking of a bone, a pain in the back, we live with the reminder that we're not home yet. Perhaps you went to a funeral recently. This world is not my home. Reminder. Every consequence of sin, every mixing of unbelief with our belief, of our faithlessness with our faith, of pain, of suffering, we're surrounded by a continual reminder that heaven awaits. And in that moment of seeing that fly in the ointment, we are flooded with that truth and that reminder. And we give glory to God in that moment. And we meditate on His goodness. This pain tells me that I'm not home yet. I believe. Help my unbelief. Our belief can manifest in all sorts of different ways. However small, 
One of the most common manifestations of unbelief from biblical times all the way from you waking up this morning is worry and fear. And as we've said before, worry is functional atheism. It's unbelief. And thankfully, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is not limited by our unbelief. He is so very patient with us. For that, we are immeasurably grateful. Next week, we'll see the cry of faith. Born from grief, in worshipful desperation, however imperfect, however mixed and tainted, there's no obstacle for our Lord. When we cry out to Christ, He will not turn us away. However stained or utterly broken we are, we must come. If we are waiting to be perfect before coming, it will never happen. The tender green shoots of faith will never be wasted. They will be held tenderly by our Savior and given the light of the Word and the water of the Spirit. It will grow. It will grow. While we will always be a mixed bag on this side of eternity, the One who is working in you is perfect. He's drawing you ever onward to a life of holiness through sanctification. We believe. Yes, we believe. Help our unbelief. He promises to perform His Word in our lives. The work that has begun in you, whether a seasoned saint or a tender green shoot of faith, He, Jesus Christ, will be faithful to complete that good work in your life. He will perform. He can be trusted. He has been given all power and authority. And no power of hell sings the hymn. No scheme of man can ever pluck you from His hand. Until that day He calls us home, we cry out with the faith of this Father. I believe. As best as I know how, I believe. However imperfect, I believe. Help us, Lord, for we are desperate this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a desperate people this morning. We are a dependent people this morning. Lord, we are not lone rangers. We must know You. We must know Your people. And we do believe. We ask that You would help our unbelief. Heavenly Father, we ask that this message would be lodged in our hearts. That we would take it this week. That we would mull it over and chew it over and digest it into our spirit. Heavenly Father, You are good. We ask that You keep us this week until we meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen.